Tonight's top stories. Pope and Patriarch play footsie in Havana. NASA's space probe kisses asteroid. And Michigan State University, the first to grow corn. Nasus Gabinek Mount, Nartinas, Tantorvados. Plus, coming up, a special report on the missing socks of the world. We ask, where have they gone? Those are the headlines. The news is like a squirrel, it's always nuts. News Bang, taking the pulse of truth one beat at a time. 2016. In a move that has sent shockwaves through the world of Christianity, Pope Francis and Patriarch Kirill of Moscow have signed the Havana Declaration at Jose Marti International Airport in Cuba. The historic meeting between the leaders of the Catholic and Russian Orthodox churches is being hailed as a symbolic step towards reconciliation, despite not actually achieving anything immediately. The joint declaration was penned in crayon on back of an airport baggage tag by His Holiness and His Eminence, who then exchanged hats for photos before going their separate ways. It's hoped this groundbreaking event will pave the way for more meaningless gestures between religious leaders in years to come. In related news, God has been unavailable for comment but is believed to be chuffed to bits. It to do, sister. 2001. Well, strap in for a cosmic tale of space-age proportions. It's 2001, and NASA, or as they're known by their full name, not actual rocket scientists, have sent the near Shoemaker probe to Tango with an asteroid called Eros. Now, Eros is no ordinary space rock. It's part of the Amor group. Not to be confused with the Egyptian god of love, but close enough. Near Shoemaker spent months waltzing around Eros before deciding on a risky maneuver. Landing on its bumpy surface, the world held its breath as our plucky probe touched down gently, then immediately bounced off and landed again. Astronaut Buzz Lightyear was quoted as saying, that's one small hop for mankind. Eros itself is a stony customer, shaped like a potato that's been microwaved too long, lumpy and unrecognisable. But don't let its appearance fool you. This celestial couch potato has revealed secrets about the birth of our solar system. Or so say scientists who need grant money to keep looking at rocks in space. 1855. On this day in 1855, a group of drunken farmers founded Michigan State University. They'd been arguing over who could grow the most crops and decided to settle it by starting a university. The result was Michigan State, an agricultural college where students could learn how to plough straight lines and pull turnips. The college soon became known for its wild parties, with students often seen staggering out of the library at harvest time, reeking of manure and covered in hay. In 1863, they were given land-grant status, which meant they no longer had to pay rent on their fields but still owed their souls to Satan. Over the years, the university expanded across the state like a rampant potato blight, spreading knowledge about crop rotation and animal husbandry wherever it went. Alumni flocked from all corners of America to study there, if only because it was better than working on their parents' farmsteads. Today, East Lansing is synonymous with MSU, you can't throw a pitchfork without hitting an alumnus or alumnae, or whatever they call them these days. It's homecoming weekend every weekend in these parts. And as for that infamous rivalry with Ohio State. Well, 
Let's just say it's like watching two scarecrows fight over a cornhusk doll. News Bang, a daily dose of the unvarnished truth. And now for your daily weather update, we welcome Shakanaka Giles. Tomorrow in the southeast, expect a damp and dreary day, like a soggy biscuit that's lost its crunch. The rain will be persistent, much like a toddler demanding attention. Moving on to the Midlands, where it'll be a bit like a damp dishcloth, with a chance of drizzle and a high of 7 degrees. In the north, it'll be a chilly affair, with temperatures dipping to a brisk 2 degrees, so wrap up warm and don't forget your leg warmers. Over in Scotland, prepare for a blustery day with gusts of wind that'll make you feel like you're in a wind tunnel. The rain will be relentless, so best to stay indoors and enjoy a hot cuppa. And finally, in Wales, it'll be a mixed bag of weather with sunny spells followed by sudden showers. It's as if Mother Nature can't quite make up her mind. In summary, a day of damp biscuits, dishcloths and wind tunnels. Stay warm and dry, folks. And that's all the weather. Good day to you. 1988. In a dramatic episode of nautical brinkmanship, the USS Yorktown and USS Karen were bumped by Soviet warships in the Black Sea during the Cold War. Navigating through Soviet territorial waters under the guise of innocent passage, the American vessels found themselves in a game of high-stakes maritime chess. The USS Yorktown sustained minor hull damage while the USS Caron emerged unscathed. This incident, however, left an indelible mark on international relations and maritime law. Now we turn to our correspondent Brian Bastable for further analysis on this thrilling encounter between two superpowers at sea. In the shadow of death I stand tall, in the heart of darkness I remain a beacon of hope. The night is darkest before dawn, and it is now that I shine my light. The Cold War rages around me as bullets fly like hail in a hurricane. Soldiers advance like lemmings on a suicide mission, and you can hear the sound of screaming from every corner. There are two ships here, no ordinary vessels but icons of freedom. USS Yorktown and USS Karen, each with their sails billowing defiantly as they chart their course through Soviet waters in innocent passage, oblivious to the threat lurking beneath them. Cold War, tension wrapped in the flag of deceit. With minor damage to Yorktown's hull, we see how these titans weathered this storm unscathed by fear or despair. Yet still they hold firm against aggression while maintaining an unwavering resolve for peace amidst chaos. Around me explosions crackle like fireworks on New Year's Eve as men fall left and right under heavy fire. Yet somehow these heroes stand strong against tyranny's tide washing over them with every wave that crashes upon their shores. As always, dear listener, Brian Bastable reporting live from deep within the belly of this beast called War for Newsbang. Undertum 2009.
In a tragic turn of events, Colgan Air Flight 3047 plummeted to Earth in Clarence Center, New York, snuffing out the lives of all on board and one unfortunate soul on the ground. The doomed aircraft was en route from Newark, New Jersey to Buffalo Niagara International Airport in Cheektowaga, New York. A community once synonymous with prosperity now bears the weight of a solemn burden. As we tread carefully through this field of sorrow, Ken Shit stands ready to shed light on the unfolding investigation. Good evening, citizens of this wretched planet. As we plunge deeper into the abyss of human stupidity, let's remember the year 2009, when a plane full of innocent souls met their fiery end in the quaint little hamlet of Clarence Center, New York. Colgan Air Flight 3047 was en route from Newark, New Jersey to Buffalo, New York, a distance that should have taken less than two hours. But fate had other plans for these poor souls. The plane crashed into a house, killing all 49 people on board and one poor bastard in the house. This isn't just a tragedy, folks. It's a goddamn travesty. How the hell do you explain a plane full of people going down in a residential area? Are we living in some twisted version of Fahrenheit 451 where fire and chaos reign supreme? Buffalo Niagara International Airport, the airport where this flight was scheduled to land, is located in Cheektowaga, New York. It serves Buffalo, New York and Niagara Falls, New York. But it seems like this airport has more crashes than takeoffs these days. What the fuck is going on? Clarence Center, the affluent hamlet where this disaster took place, is a picture-perfect slice of Americana. But now it's a graveyard, a memorial to the senseless loss of life. And who's to blame? The pilots, the airport, the bloody weather. I don't know, and I don't care. All I know is that this is a goddamn disgrace, and someone needs to be held accountable. We can't keep losing innocent lives like this. It's time for answers, and it's time for action. This is Ken shit, reminding you that the sky is not the limit. It's the final destination for too many of our fellow humans, and it's time we do something about it. News bang, cutting through the bullshit with a well-honed blade of truth. We turn now to Polly Beep for a journey through the annals of transport mishaps and marvels, past and future. Buckle up, dear listeners, as we traverse treacherous airships, bizarre bodies of water, and roller coaster roads. Buckle up, road warriors. We're taking a trip down memory lane. First stop, 1935. The USS Macon, a helium-filled airship, has crashed into the Pacific Ocean off the coast of California. Drivers on the A1935, beware of low-flying biplanes. And watch out for any leftover helium. Last thing we need is a fleet of squeaky voice seagulls. Meanwhile, on the high seas of 1909, the SS Penguin has just sunk in Wellington Harbour. Drivers, take note. If you're on the B1909, expect delays due to floating debris and a surge of soggy penguins. The harbour's looking more like a bathtub than a bustling port. Now, back to the present day, or rather, the near future. If you're cruising along the M2024, keep an eye out for a flock of drones causing chaos. They're on a mission to deliver pizza, but they've lost their bearings and are now dive-bombing vehicles. 
In more bizarre news, the M4 has mysteriously transformed into a roller coaster. So if you're heading west, prepare for some unexpected twists and turns. Lastly, the A1M has become a temporary waterway due to an unseasonable flood. So if you're not a fan of aquatic adventures, you might want to take the scenic route. Stay safe out there, folks. This is Polly Beep, signing off with a splash. Itadusisti, 2001. And now, we turn our attention to the heavens and an extraordinary tale of British innovation. Joining us for this special report is our esteemed correspondent, Calamity Prenderville. Welcome back to Newsbang, where we're celebrating the 23rd anniversary of a mind-blowing British achievement. Picture this, it's the year 2001, and we're not just sending our beloved postman, Mr McClarence, to deliver letters across town. No, no, we've sent a plucky little spacecraft named Neil Shoemaker to land on an asteroid called Eros. Yes, you heard that right, an asteroid. And now I know what you're thinking. Calamity, how did this come about? Was it because we were bored of watching reruns of Only Fools and Horses? Well, my dear friends, it was all thanks to the brilliant minds at NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or, as I like to call them, the Nottinghamshire Association for Space Advancement. This daring mission was no small feat. Nia Shoemaker spent a whole year studying Eros from its orbit before making the historic landing. And let me tell you, Eros is no ordinary rock floating in space. It's part of the Amor group of asteroids, named after a Greek god of love, because why not? But wait, there's more! Eros is stony and irregularly shaped, much like my ex-boyfriend's attempts at cooking. And here's the kicker, Nia Shoemaker was the first spacecraft to ever study an asteroid from its very own orbit. Talk about up close and personal. So there you have it, another fantastic British innovation that proves we're not just about tea and scones. Keep your eyes peeled for more mind-boggling achievements in our Science Watch segment on Newsbang. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang, signing off. Newsbang, sifting through the sands of time to find the grains of truth. Today marks the sesquicentennial anniversary of a watershed moment in the annals of American academia. Michigan State University, the first agricultural college in the United States, was founded in 1855. A public land-grant research university nestled in East Lansing, Michigan, it would later expand its reach across the state and cultivate an extensive alumni network. As we speak, East Lansing is abuzz with celebratory fervor, a testament to its enduring identity as the home of Michigan State University. To delve deeper into this tale of educational pioneering and community pride, we turn to our correspondent Perkins Stornaway. And so it's a sunny Michigan day, dogger, moderate or good. Today marks the 167th anniversary of Michigan State University, 40s veering east three or four. The very first agricultural college in the United States, East Lansing. Biscay, slight, occasionally rough. A momentous day for land-grant institutions, Shannon, occasionally rough. 
As of 1863, the institution that blossomed. Cromarty, East, becoming Southwest, three or four. A bumper crop of mines today, sure to bring an abundance of careers in the future. A quick look at the currency dime. Fastnet, good, occasionally poor. The East Lansing Spartans of Michigan State University have just won the land-grant Super Bowl, knocking out the University of Michigan with a new record 2.41. On the international front, Lundy, fair. Michigan State University has joined the big leagues, trading crops and livestock with China, Russia and even North Korea. Hebrides, occasionally rough. In summary, Thames, fair, occasionally moderate. And in the end, as we reflect on the legacy of 1855 Rockall, West, backing Southwest, four or five. We bid farewell to this historic day with a toast to the next 167 years of agricultural growth and the MSU Spartans. Business. Bernice. 1947. In a move that would have left Marie Antoinette speechless, Christian Dior unveiled his revolutionary new look in 1947, effectively changing the course of women's fashion post-World War II. Paris, regaining its rightful place as the epicentre of haute couture, welcomed this audacious transformation with open arms and closed wallets. Now Smithsonian Moss delves into the decadent world of Dior and how it continues to dictate the pulse of global fashion trends. Now at this point of the evening we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Wahoo, my fashion forward friends. It's your girl Smithsonian Moss dishing out the deets on the most iconic moment in fashion history. Buckle up, buttercups, because we're throwing it back to 1947 when Christian Dior said au revoir to wartime woes and bonjour, baby, to the new look that had everyone's panties in a Parisian twist. Picture this. Europe's just dusted itself off from WW2, and Dior's like, you know what this world needs? A waistline you could strangle a cat with. And bam. He drops the bombshell of the fashion world with skirts puffier than a poodle's pompadour, and jackets cinched tighter than a nun's habit. Now let's talk about the real MVP, Bernard Arnault, the big kahuna of LVMH, who's basically the puppet master of Parisian chic. He's got his fingers in more pies than a baker with an identity crisis, and he's steering this Dior ship like he's freaking Noah, and it's the Ark. Paris, oh la la, the city of lights, love, and looking like you've just stepped off a runway even when you're just buying a baguette. It's the place where fashionistas flock like seagulls to a chip, and where Dior's new look had everyone saying, je ne sais quoi, more like, je ne sais wow. So, there you have it, my haute couture honeys. Dior didn't just give us a new silhouette. He gave us life after the drab ration book reality of the war. And thanks to Monsieur Arnaud, Dior's legacy is like the gift that keeps on giving, like herpes, but make it fashion. And that's a wrap on this style saga. Keep it sassy, keep it classy, and remember, if you can't be good, be gorgeously Dior. Waho. News bang, taking the bull by the horns of truth. 2016. In a momentous event that has set the world abuzz, 
Pope Francis and Patriarch Kirill of Moscow inked the Havana Declaration at Jose Marti International Airport in Cuba. The Catholic Church, with its 1.3 billion baptized Catholics, welcomed this historic union, while the Russian Orthodox Church flexed its spiritual muscles with 194 dioceses in Russia. The long-awaited meeting between the two religious titans was symbolic, but not anticipated to yield immediate reconciliation. The backdrop of Cuba's primary international airport provided a fitting stage for this landmark agreement. And to discuss the implications of this unprecedented union between the Catholic Church and the Russian Orthodox Church is our resident religious correspondent, Pastor Kevin Monstrance. Thank you, thank you. You're too kind. Though I must say this studio audience is far more lively than the one at my last show in Havana. My word, you could have heard a Hail Mary drop in that crowd when I took the stage. And it was no wonder, given the historic meeting that had just taken place at the airport next door. <laughs> yes, it was 2016 when Pope Frankie and Patriarch Kirill finally had their long-awaited tete-a-tete. Quite the ecumenical event it was. Though between you and me, getting those two to see eye to eye was like trying to convince my great-aunt Matilda that VHS has had its day. She did love her VHS tapes, had a whole cupboard full, meticulously labelled in her spidery handwriting. I'll never forget the day I tried to explain Netflix to her. Downloadable entertainment piped through the air. Sounds like devilry to me, she declared, and that was the end of that. But back to Havana, Ido. Now Kirill and Frankie had been dancing around this meeting for years. The logistics alone were a nightmare, what with the orthodox chaps banning caffeine and the Vatican lot refusing to give up their espresso breaks. They finally settled on Cuba as neutral territory. Even then, the two patriarchs bickered like schoolboys over protocol and seating charts. Apparently at one point, Frankie threatened to bring his own chair. But finally, the big day arrived, and the meeting went off without a hitch. Well, apart from the power going out halfway through, forcing them to finish by candlelight, I like to think that was the Lord Almighty's little way of saying, less pageantry, more substance, please, gentlemen. And substance there was, for they emerged with a joint declaration outlining their common goals, a true milestone for East-West relations. Of course, some cynical clergy in the ranks thought it all a bit of peace-and-love window-dressing. My own parish priest, Father O'Leary, dismissed it as pure fluff over whiskey that Sunday. But I say any excuse for the church bigwigs to leave their gilded palaces and meet on common ground is progress in my book. <laughs> now then, have I got time for a quick joke? There once were two Irish priests, Fathers Patrick and Michael, who decided to go on vacation to Moscow. After the long flight, jet-lagged and disoriented, they accidentally wandered into a Russian Orthodox Church service. Surrounded by icons, incense and choral singing, they stared around in bewilderment. <laughs> Father Patrick turned to Father Michael and said, I think we've landed in heaven itself. And Father Michael replied, Ah, now, heaven it may be but I'll bet it's still run by the Catholics. <laughs> well, God bless you all. May we one day see a reunited Christian church, however unlikely. Keep the faith.
And just time for a final look at tomorrow's headlines. The Times. Smart bomb dumb outcome. Hundreds dead in Baghdad shelter. The Independent. Dresden devastation. Allies firestorm. Fury kills thousands. And The Sun. Sabbath's heavy metal. Birth screams onto scene. That's it for tonight. Remember, the early bird might get the worm, but it's the second mouse that gets the cheese. Good night, and don't let the bedbugs bite, because as we all know, they've been trained to steal your wallet. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.